We're in our second week of the Depressed People of the Bible seminar, and uh, we're using principles out of the book Depression the Way Out by Dr. Neil Nedley and Depressed People of the Bible. And so there's some aspects of both of those. And so we're going to start off this week with a little uh, talk from Dr. Neil Nedley um, regarding the role of medication in depression. She immediately started opening up about her experience and long story short she at a very young age went to go see a physician about her depression that she was suffering from and got put on the wrong dosage of antidepressants. It was a much too strong dosage for where she was at at that point and it put her into a much more serious condition of depression than what she was even experiencing before. Welcome to Let's Talk Mental Health, where we bring awareness to the causes and solutions of mental health conditions. I'm here with Dr. Neil Nedley. From your perspective, where exactly do medications fit in this grand scheme of mental disorders? And I'm sure there are some that medications are very successful with and some that aren't. What would be some examples of that? Well, studies show that at best, two-thirds of people will improve somewhat on antidepressants. Uh, within a few months of taking these medicines. Uh, only 20% are actually uh, no longer qualifying as having depression and anxiety. So they can be helpful, but we normally utilize these medicines. Of course, as a physician, I can prescribe them as well, and often I do. But these medicines have to be utilized as a short-term stopgap measure until we find the underlying problems and reverse those problems. And in our experience, 90% of people with depression and anxiety, once we take care of those underlying problems, they're going to be able to live depression-free, anxiety-free, and medication-free. But there are 10% that because of certain scars on their brain and those type of things, uh, will be able to live depression-free and anxiety-free with taking care of the underlying causes, but they're also going to need medication on board. So only 10% of people with depression and anxiety um, really need the medications long-term. Uh, the rest of them, if we take care of the underlying conditions, it's just a short-term uh, effect of a few months. Uh, stop it before a lot of those side effects and the depletion of the neurons occur and then you'll be better off and you won't have as many issues than if you're on them for years. Recently, I was conversing with an acquaintance of mine about my job and I, I was basically saying that I worked for a mental health company and they instantly became very interested in that and wanted to know what exactly I did and she immediately started opening up about her experience and long story short, she at a very young age went to go see a physician about her depression that she was suffering from and got put on the wrong dosage of antidepressants. It was a much too strong dosage for where she was at at that point and it put her into a much more serious condition of depression than what she was even experiencing before. And it just kind of shocked me to hear that someone who's a professional and you know, that's their livelihood, would put a person in a situation like this. And obviously it wasn't intentional. And I guess I was just shocked, really, that these situations happen. And I'm sure this isn't an isolated case. And 
I was wondering what you've seen in regards to treating depression from a drug standpoint or a pharmaceutical standpoint. Well, pharmaceuticals are the number one treatment for depression today. It doesn't mean they're the number one best treatment, but if you go to a doctor and you have symptoms of depression, expect to be put on a medication because that's the toolbox that they're aware of and that's the tool that they can provide that you can't get from non-physicians. And so uh, these drugs are utilized and passed out like candy uh, today in every a pharmacy. It's the number one class of drugs sold now uh, in America. Which is that antidepressants? Antidepressants, wow. yeah. And so, uh, but these things are actually altering what's happening in our, our synapse and uh, where uh, neurotransmission occurs. They're actually not expanding our ability to make neurotransmitters, nor are they helping us to have more receptors to bind onto the neurotransmitter. What they're doing is plugging the vacuum cleaners that actually vacuum the synapse up after the synaptic activity is supposed to occur. And by plugging up those vacuum cleaners, there's more of that maybe serotonin, if it's a serotonin, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, there's more of it there. So if there's lack of serotonin, we might get more of a synaptic transmission. But eventually they're going to deplete the very neuron of the substance that we're trying to treat. And so that that's why people end up becoming what we call psychiatric cripples, because then they relapse even when they're on medicine, they need more doses, they need more medicines over time but really the, the underlying causes of the condition are not being addressed. And so, uh, yeah, and if you get on too high a dose or you don't need a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, not everyone with depression has a serotonin problem. And so if we block the serotonin reuptake, we might have an excess of serotonin. And if that's not our problem, we could get worse. We could get headaches, we could get confusion, we could get you know, nausea, we could get diarrhea, you know, there's all sorts of symptoms that can come about. It can produce an, a, a flat affect of I don't care attitude anymore. Uh, and so these are things that uh, are the untoward um, side effects of the pharmaceutical industry and I assume she was getting some of those side effects which can even get you worse. Uh, one of the things that we caution, in fact, every doctor is cautioned on it by the PDR that these drugs actually worsen impulsivity before they improve depression. Well, suicide is often an impulsive act, so if you have someone who's thinking of suicide and now you've made them more impulsive before they improve depression, uh, that can actually cause or be one of the precipitating factors of causing suicide. So many people that commit suicide are actually just put on antidepressants. Uh, within that first month uh, is when it tends to occur. So uh, this is why prescribing medicines are not for um, the faint of heart. <laughs> you, you need to really know what you're doing, you need to know how to monitor this, and what we would recommend for the patient is, is your doctor actually looking for the causes in you and are they addressing those causes? Are they using other tools besides just medicine? As far as going to get off of these medications, is there a process that you recommend? I'm sure you don't want people just at home, you know, saying, hey, I, I, I guess I don't need these anymore. Let me just throw them away, flush them down the toilet. I'm, that, that's not a recommendation that you would give. 
right. but is there a process that you use or that you have your patients um, go through that helps them, you know, find the, the drugs that, are, that they're not needing and get off of those? Yeah, absolutely. There is a process, and we have this process based on if we've taken care of the underlying causes. And then we get their depression scores down to where they no longer qualify as having depression. And if we've taken care of the underlying causes and they no longer have depression, they're, they're able to start the wean. And that depends on which medication it is and how we wean it. Every medicine is weaned off a little differently. There are some that are very easy to get off of, like Prozac or Welbutrin. Uh, and Welbutrin we can stop abruptly when it's time, and there isn't really the withdrawal symptoms. Uh, Prozac has such a long half-life, it weans itself off. You stop it and it takes 30 days to get out of your system, so it's kind of a, an easier one to get off of. Now, they might have withdrawal at 30 days, but they're not going to have withdrawal tomorrow necessarily uh, when they stop it, particularly if we've taken care of the underlying um, issues. But the other ones uh, will require more of a weaning schedule. And normally that weaning schedule, they're off it within a matter of three weeks, maybe four, uh, as we slowly taper and have them evaluate their mental health status. They take some objective self-tests every week while they're doing this to make sure they're still able to wean off of this. And actually, once they're off the medicine, they'll actually talk about feeling far better than they did with the medicine because now they actually don't need it because the underlying problems have been solved. Now, it should be stated that a lot of doctors know how to put people on these medicines, but not a lot of them know how to take you off. It's going to be more of a psychiatrist or someone who's very familiar with the use of these drugs. Uh, people uh, like myself who are dedicated my life uh, to knowing the, the effects of these medicines. Uh, those are the ones that are going to be the best as far as being able to put you on a weaning schedule to successfully get you off of the medicines. Well, thank you for your time. This is great content and very good things to know when dealing with depression or anxiety or any of these mental disorders and having to deal with the medications that come with it. So thank you for your time, Dr. Nedley. You're very welcome. This is Let's Talk Mental Health. I'm your host, Nathan Nedley, and as always, stay healthy, live happy. Okay, so that was pretty interesting stuff uh, that uh, it can cause, medications can cause suicide or be a factor that will cause within the first few weeks, first month or so, uh, that it's the number one medication or grouping of medications that is being prescribed right now. It shows you how widespread depression is and how much of a need there is and that only 10% need it on a long-term basis and yet uh, doctors prescribing it, putting them on it and as he said Few know how to wean them off it or even have a thought of weaning them off it. I mean, if you're either on medication or know people who are, how infrequent it is that you hear of a doctor who's trying to find the underlying issues and removing those so that they can get off the medication. It's not that often that's done that way. And yet what we'll be looking at today and throughout this series and what Dr. Nedley looks at at the Nedley Depression Recovery Program is to find out what the underlying causes are and we'll be looking at the 10 hits again tonight uh, and then once those causes are brought down under the four hit level then the depression goes away and then they can start the weaning off process. So the person we're going to be looking at today from the Bible 
is Naomi, who experienced a bitter grief experience, a bitter grief time. And again, we're not going to be looking at uh, Naomi to psychoanalyze her, or, you know, to, to judge her and to uh, hold her accountable, but to look at her so that we can kind of see what things she went through and then use that as a mirror to look at ourselves. It's a lot easier to look at someone else, especially from the Bible who's dead and you know, that uh, is not sitting there in front of us, than to put you on the hot spot and, 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 and work on your issues, right? But this way we can, you can look at that and see your issues and hopefully then start to lower your hit level uh, or those that you're helping and ministering to and speaking with your loved ones. So let's take a look at, at Naomi. We'll start in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and his two sons, Ephraimites of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. So we have this family, they're from Bethlehem, Israel, and there's a famine in the land. It's the time of the judges, so this is after Moses and before King David. There's a 400-year period of time of the judges, and this is towards the Oh, maybe 300 years or so into the time of the judges, about 300 years or so after Moses, about 100 or so years before David. And, uh, and there's this famine in the land, so they leave Israel and they go to the neighboring country of Moab. Elimelech died. Naomi's sons took Moabite wives, Orpha and Ruth, and they dwelt there 10 years, and then both of Naomi's sons died. And that is tremendously stressful, the death of the husband, and then especially two children. And from what I've, when I've spoken with people who've lost their children, and uh, some have said it's, it's the worst type of death that there could be, the worst type of grief that there is. And we see that uh, in some ways. For example, what do we call someone who lost their spouse? What's the term that we have in English for the loss of a spouse. What do you become? The survivor. A widow or a widower. widower. Correct. Uh, so a widow or a widower. What do we call someone who lost their parents? Both their parents. What are they now? They're orphans. What do we call someone, a survivor, who lost their children? We don't, yeah, they're sad, right? We don't have a term. We don't have a name. We don't even identify it. We haven't even come up with a word to describe it because it's so unthinkable. It's so un, you know, you can't even talk about it so that the, it's, it's not, my microphone's not working? So it's not, there we go. Uh, so that we don't even talk about it because, again, it's so horrendous of an experience. It's out of normal, right? It's not normal for our children to, predecease us, right? They're younger than us, uh, and so, uh, again, in our society, we don't even have a term for it, so there's a hard, hard grief that comes along with that, and so Naomi is experiencing that, not just only the loss of one child, which is grieving enough, and, and even people who have 10 children but lose one, it's still traumatic and, 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 and never forgotten, uh, but how much more so when losing all her children, both her children, as well as losing her husband. So she's experiencing uh, grief regarding that. And so she and her two daughter-in-laws with her went to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said, return, the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
the Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of a husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. So she's encouraging them, her daughter-in-law is not to go. And they're saying, no, we want to go with you. They're sticking with her. And Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say that I have hope, and if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you wait for them till they are grown? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so we're starting to see the depression here in her words. Uh, she's losing hope. She has no hope for the future. And even if I did have hope, uh, there's, it's impossible for there to be any solution for you. She's carrying the weight of the daughters that she feels that she needs to provide for them, that I would have to have children for you to be able to marry. And that is an overwhelming uh, pressure and heaviness that she's feeling. And she is feeling uh, forsaken by God. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Not only forsaken by God, but God is like punishing her that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she says. And so we're starting to see here, some of the, in some of her words, this experiencing of this kind of grief. Now, with grief, and so that she's experiencing a situational grief, which is different than clinical grief, uh, or clinical depression. She has a situational depression. Her situation is that she's grieving. She's lost her husband and then her two sons. And that's normal and that's natural. A person should be grieving at that time and should be feeling depressed under those circumstances. Uh, if we're not feeling depressed that our children just died and, and our husband recently died, then that is not normal and that is not healthy. Um, my uh, uh, grandparents were married, on my mother's side, were married over 50 years and my grandfather died and my grandmother uh, went for her regular checkup with her regular uh, physician um, and he asked how she was doing and she said how she was sad and lonely and depressed, the loss of her husband, and he prescribed for her some depression medicine to help her with her depression. Now she never took it, um, but it just shows you the, the mindset of that, okay, you're depressed, so we need to fix this, so here, take these depressant medicines that will suppress your grieving. When the grieving for her is a natural thing to experience when you just lost your spouse of 50 years. And there are a lot of people in the Bible who experienced uh, depression because of grief, experienced grief, and we'll be covering them uh, in further uh, talks. And if you're grieving today, I encourage you to jump ahead uh, to those chapters we have. So this chapter, we'll talk a little bit about grief because of uh, depression because of grief. There's also a chapter on Martha and Mary, and then another chapter entitled uh, A Surprising Example of Depression. And all three of those go a little bit more into detail of uh, dealing with grief and depression. And so if you're experiencing grief now because of a loss of someone, then, um, then I'll encourage you to look in the book and read ahead and read those chapters as well, because we get into the five stages of grief, and there are stages of grief, and it's very helpful to know them and to know what you're experiencing. 
and we don't want to suppress those stages of grief. We want to experience those because we need to go through them, whatever we're grieving. And it could be the loss of a loved one, it could be the loss of a job, it could be the loss of a, uh, of a, of a, a limb or an ability. Uh, maybe your eyesight is getting dim, maybe you're getting old and you can't do what you used to do, and so that's a loss. Uh, or a loss of uh, your pencil or whatever, your, your phone or your keys. Right? We go through, no matter what we have lost, whatever experience we're grieving, we still go through those five stages of grief. Now, hopefully it's not as intense for for losing your, your cell phone as it would be for, uh, for losing a loved one, but they, we still go through, and so understanding those stages, and again, it's good for us to go through those, and we don't want to suppress them, we don't want to block them out, we don't want to deaden them, uh, and medication could do that and hinder us from going through those stages of grief. And in another one of the chapters we, we talk about um, things that we can do to help that process of going through the stages of grief. So again, if you're experiencing grief today because of a recent death of a loved one, hopefully this chapter will be helpful, but then also those other chapters uh, will be helpful for you as well. And one of those stages is blame. And so here she's blaming uh, God. The Lord, hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And, uh, and also maybe some self-blame or or a heavy burden on herself that she has to provide for the daughter-in-laws. Verse 14, still in chapter 1. Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and Naomi said, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return. So it seems that at this point, uh, Ruth and Orpha worshiping foreign gods, other gods, other than the God of, of Israel, the God of Ruth or rather the God of Naomi. And so Naomi has said several times now, maybe it's four times or so, return, return, return. She's encouraging uh, Ruth to return as well. And then Ruth says these fabulous words, powerful words, entreat me not to leave you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me. There might not be any more beautiful words in the Bible uh, from human to human other than these. They're really beautiful. And, and we often see them at weddings, and it's uh, just really touching. Her commitment not only to stay with Ruth, but uh, to identify with Ruth God. Ruth. God, uh, rather Naomi's God, and that is powerful. So we see here Ruth making this transition from the foreign gods, the pagan gods of the Moabites and, and the idols, and accepting the creator God, the living God, uh, uh, Naomi's God, and then us also Naomi's people. So beautiful, right? Beautiful, very touching. And we would expect now for Naomi to be very thankful. She's not alone. She has a partner. She has her daughter-in-law who's sticking with her, who's accepted the Lord because of Naomi's life and her witness. Verse 18 says, And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, Naomi stopped speaking to Ruth. <laughs> now that might seem a little odd. Now, 
Now, I might just be saying that she just stopped speaking about entreating her to go back. Right? She gave up pushing her to go back four times. After four times, she's determined, I give up. And that could be it. But as we'll see in another verse or so, the depression that Naomi is experiencing, it's not uncommon when we're depressed to push away the very people who are there trying to help us. And for us to ignore them and to uh, even be angry at them. Uh, she could be blaming uh, Ruth for wanting to stay with her, being angry with her, because again, she's, we've already seen, she's seeing this as a burden now that she's going to have to provide for uh, Ruth. And she's gonna have to provide a husband for her, uh, it's another mouth to feed, it's gonna be a tough enough journey as it is, and so she can see it as a burden and not wanting them around. And that's kind of one of the strange uh, situations that we have when we're depressed, we complain that there's no one there to help us and no one understands and no one cares, and at the same time we're pushing the very ones away who are there trying to help us. And, uh, and so she could be angry and pushing her away, and another reason, a second reason when we're depressed is, as we saw with Jonah, Naomi might just be wanting to crawl in a little hole somewhere and not see anyone, not talk to anyone, and just isolate herself. And so she might have, even as they walk together, and it is quite a journey uh, from Moab uh, to, to uh, Bethlehem. It wouldn't be a one-day journey. It would only be several days, if not weeks, uh, especially for two ladies. And we see later on that uh, Naomi is obviously not in great shape. She never goes out and gleans in the fields. Uh, and so uh, to make that trip through the desert, you have to cross the Jordan River. And at this time, the Jordan River would be in flood stage. It's spring when they're doing the crossing. And then they have to go from the Jericho area all the way up to Jerusalem. It's a very, very, very steep desert uh, climb and very difficult and hot uh, trip to, to make. Uh, it's the same road that uh, we have the Bible story of the, of the Good Samaritan, the man who travels on the road, gets beaten, and then the Good Samaritan helps him. And, uh, and so this is the path that they would have to take. And so she has this burden of bringing Ruth with her and not really wanting anyone around and maybe giving her the silent treatment and not even recognizing that she's there, not even thinking about Ruth standing there, walking with her. She's just still thinking about her husband and she's still thinking about her sons and she's just in her own little dark hole. Uh, I've had several experiences, I'll, I'll share one with you, uh, or maybe more than one, but um, where a person came to me and I, who just attempted suicide and uh, sharing with me how there was no one there, no one cared about him, no one would listen to him, no one wanted to hear his story. And I wasn't charging him. And I said to him, I mean, what am I, chopped liver? I mean, <laughs> I'm here, I'm sitting here, I'm listening to your story. I'm, I'm willing to try and help you out. And, uh, and also, his wife was sitting right there next to him and who brought him and, uh, and had been doing wonderful things and trying to help him. And he wasn't even acknowledging her or me until I pointed that out and then he was uh, forced to acknowledge, yes, I guess there are some people who do care about him, uh, including his, his loving uh, wife. Uh, but again, when we're in that state of depression, we don't even see it and she's not even seeing Ruth, not even acknowledging Ruth, not even speaking to Ruth, uh, maybe this whole time. And I've seen, I've seen where even 
uh, where here at least she's not speaking to her. I've seen where uh, a depressed person will even just really talk badly right in front of the person that's there, standing there, uh, trying to help them and minister to them and comfort them and put them down and uh, just really say really, really nasty things. Um, and then there have been times where I've said, well, okay, so we'll let them share, and I'll say, but tell me something that you're thankful for. Yeah. And they'll think, and they'll think, and they'll think, well, I'm thankful for Bob. You know, after <laughs> you just are saying all these horrible things, and then that's what they'll come up with. When we're forced to think, really, uh, logically and not the emotionally. Now, we also see here that, at least it doesn't mention anything from this verse to then the next verse, we'll see they're in Bethlehem. Ruth say anything. And when we're in that position of trying to help someone who's going through grief, sometimes not saying anything is the best thing that we can say. Just being there is helpful. And even if they're not acknowledging your presence, even if they're not thankful for your presence, even if they're angry at you, even if they are trying to push you away, uh, sometimes just being there is helpful. Sometimes the wrong words, I mean, there's never really a right word. Uh, you can say something in words of comfort to one person that they may find very comforting, and then someone else who's experiencing grief and the loss of a loved one, you can try and say those same words to them and then be offended by it. Uh, you know, well, at least they're not in any pain anymore, or something like that, and then someone else might not think that is so helpful. Uh, so sometimes it's best to just go with the flow of whatever the person is feeling. And so if that person says, well, at least they're not in pain anymore, then you can acknowledge that and go along with that. But uh, sometimes just being quiet and just being there is, is the best thing. And also if we are uh, in a ministering role at that point, at a point in our lives, and we're being rejected and being pushed away, don't take it personally. Because it's not about you. They don't hate you. They're not, not wanting you there. Uh, they are wanting you there. They are wanting someone there. Uh, so don't be so thin-skinned. Realize that they're experiencing grief. Realize that they are depressed. And maybe give them some space. You know, maybe back off um, and say, well, I'll just check back with you in a, in a few days. You don't do that. Maybe a phone call, a text, or email or something, and check back every so often. Um, but give them some space uh, if they need be. But, but don't get upset about it. Don't take it personally. Don't, don't hold it against them. Don't get angry at them. Uh, because it's not them that's speaking. It's the depression that's speaking and, and pushing you away. And that's what I think is really the issue here, that she stopped speaking to Ruth. And they had a very quiet journey from there on out. As we see in this next verse, verse 19, when they came to Bethlehem, all the city was excited because of them. But she said, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So four different times we see she's blaming God, He's afflicted me, he's testified against me, he's against me, he's, uh, he's um, dealt bitterly with me, and she's experiencing that and blaming God, which again is not unusual. Um, it's part of the stages is blame. And she's saying, don't call me pleasant, that's what Naomi means, her birth name was pleasant. 
Don't call me pleasant, I'm not pleasant, I'm bitter. <laughs> the whole city after 10 years, right? She might have been thinking, maybe no one even cares anymore, maybe no one remembers me anymore, right? In that quiet journey back, the fear, what's gonna be there, what's my house like, is the property still there, what's happened to it? Is anyone still alive that I knew? And, uh, and so going back, and then they're all excited, they're happy to see her, they can't wait, they go out, they run out to see her, that's Naomi, can you believe it? Hi Naomi, how are you doing? And she's like, go away, I'm bitter. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you. And I went out full, and I came back empty. And Ruth is sitting there. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> they might say, well, who's this? You, know? you had two sons when you were, who's this? Uh, but again, that's, so we see her experiencing and voicing this depression. It's natural depression, situational depression, because of the grief. So let's take a look at the 10 hits uh, that Dr. Nedley identifies. And as we learned last week, if a person keeps their hits under four, they should be able to cope with all whatever the problem is and not go into uh, clinical depression. Uh, but if we allow it to get over four, we have a very good high chance of becoming clinically depressed. But then again, the solution is just to bring that number back under the four and that is possible, uh, and then the depression will go away. So let's take a look at uh, these hits, and again, as we do this, and looking at this for Naomi, maybe be thinking in your mind, well, what hit do maybe I have, and maybe you only have one or two, but you can still bring those down and eliminate those, and then um, start working on those. So genetic, we don't have any family history, uh, recent history for Naomi. I mean, we can go back to Judah. <laughs> Uh, you know, several hundred years before, but uh, we don't know if she had depression in her family history. Developmental, we don't have enough history regarding her. Story jumps in when she's married, so we don't know her childhood, so we don't know either one of those for her. Lifestyle, low exercise, low sunlight, low fresh air. Now, certainly on the trip from Moab to uh, Israel, she got plenty of exercise, plenty of fresh air, plenty of sunlight but we don't know what she was experiencing just prior to choosing to leave. Uh, you know, we don't know how long ago it was before when her sons died, and so she might have just crawled up in a ball in her bedroom there and sat there for days and weeks on end, and the rent is coming due, and there's nobody to pay the rent, and you know, and heavy burden on that, and again, what am I gonna do now, and should I go back to Israel, and who's there, and what's going on with the land, and so she might have been experiencing uh, lifestyle hit just prior to going back. Circadian rhythm, again, if she was in that kind of a situation, she might have been sleeping over nine hours. Um, she might have been irregular. Again, if finances were tight, you don't necessarily know. It might have been some troubles and worrying and fearing and, uh, for, again, finances in her future. She might not have been sleeping well, might not have been getting six hours of sleep. And so she could have had circadian rhythm problem. Addiction. Uh, tobacco, caffeine, pot, and narcotics weren't around my research in Israel at the time, so they were very fortunate for that, and alcohol was very minor, and we don't have any description of her drinking alcohol, so that probably was not the case for her. Nutrition, uh, high cholesterol, high fat, high sugar. Uh, they didn't have McDonald's and Burger King in Israel at that time, or in Moab at that time, so she probably was 
probably pretty good on, on that, although if she get, wasn't eating right, traveling the distance, and who knows how much they were able to take with them and how much money they had to buy things along the way, uh, she might have been low on tryptophan or omega-3 or vitamin B or folic acid and not be getting a good nutritional balance. Uh, so that could have been uh, a, a problem. Toxic, we don't know if she had any high lead, mercury, arsenic, uh, or any of the other poisons in her body. You need the blood test for that. Social grief, stress, definitely she's got a lot of stress. No support system, she has Ruth, she had Orpha, but she did not acknowledge them or feel like she had their support. So she doesn't feel like she has support, and that's the same thing as not having support. And she's not feeling like God is supportive. She feels like God is against her and God is punishing her. So she's really feeling that uh, pressure of no support and great loss. And of course, she's experienced great loss in losing her sons and her husband. Medical, we don't have her medical history, hepatitis C, stroke, heart disease, cancer, Parkinson's, lupus, diabetes. Frontal lobe, low carb, high protein uh, with meat and cheese. Uh, I don't think the keto diet was around then. And or the Atkinson or the Beach Diet or all these horrible things that cause or factor in depression uh, that are horrible, horrible uh, for the body in a lot of ways. Uh, thankfully, she didn't have TV. She's very fortunate. She didn't have internet. Very fortunate. Uh, sex, uh, high sex amounts she wasn't experiencing. Syncopated music, probably not. Low abstract thinking, possibly. Acting against conscience. Well, that's very possible. If she was feeling guilt for maybe leaving Bethlehem, Israel and going to Moab, obviously there was a famine, but obviously not everybody left town. Not everybody died. Right? So they could have stayed. They could have toughed it out. They could have maybe gone somewhere else. Something else. Maybe she was feeling guilty about that. Maybe it wasn't her choice. Maybe it was her husband's choice, and maybe she's feeling I should have spoke up more. Or maybe it was her choice, and maybe she pushed her husband, and now she's grieving. If I didn't push Elimelech to do that and to go to Moab, maybe he'd still be alive, and our kids would still be alive. And so she might be feeling uh, this now safe self-blame, uh, acting against conscience. Uh, she was there 10 years. Certainly the famine didn't last 10 years. So she might be feeling, well, hey, okay, we left for the famine, but we should have come back as soon as the famine was over. Why do we stay there 10 years? And we read that it was after Elimelech died that her sons married Moabite wives that we saw uh, did not have the same gods. And so she, it was under her that she allowed them to marry unequally yoked. And she might be uh, feeling uh, guilt because of that and self-blame that, that God's punishing me and us for, for, the, for that. And, and now they're all dead. And so she might be experiencing uh, that she felt like she acted against her conscience and convictions. So a number of things there could be uh, possible with her. Uh, again, certainly social, good possibility, frontal lobe, and maybe some of those others that she might have been experiencing. And for, again, situational depression, we don't always need to have the four or more to be in depression. Again, a situation takes place. Again, we should be depressed. We should be sad if we just lost our two children and... Uh, are a widow, right, under those circumstances and situations. So that would be normal and okay for her to experience that kind of depression and then work through it. And so she should be working through it. 
So let's go back to the story, chapter 2, verse 3. As Ruth gleaned, she came to a field belonging to a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth named Boaz. And so Ruth goes out and starts working. Verse 20, chapter 2 still, verse 20. Naomi said, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and to the dead. He is one of our close relatives. And boom, just like that, she's out of her depression. Yeah. <laughs> right? What made the difference? Hope. Exactly, hope. She now has hope. She doesn't have a guarantee. Right? She doesn't necessarily know that Boaz is going to do anything. And as we, if you read the whole story, and we're not going to go into the whole Ruth story, I do encourage you, it's a beautiful story um, to, to read it uh, in the Bible. But she now has hope. But this Boaz... He's not necessarily, he's not, as we find out later, he's not the closest relative. And so this other woman could have been the one to end up marrying uh, Ruth. And, or even if that person, or even if Boaz, we don't necessarily know that Boaz is a nice guy. He might be rich, but he might not be a nice guy. Even if he goes and marries uh, Ruth, uh, he might beat her, he might, you know, who knows what he does. He might beat uh, Ruth, Naomi as well. Right? We have no idea, but she has hope, even though she doesn't have a guarantee. And that makes all the difference for her. And maybe if you're experiencing depression right now, that might be all it takes. Uh, for uh, Jonah, last week we saw all it took was choosing to thank God and acknowledge God's presence. And he came out of depression, at least at that point in the story, before he sighed and made some more choices and went back into depression. And for uh, Naomi here, she goes from this depression, I'm bitter, I'm Call me Mara, um, and lasting at least days and weeks, if not longer, and now, boom, she's out of it because she now has hope. Now, when could she have had hope? Did it have to wait till hearing about Boaz before she had hope? Or could she have had it even while she was still in Moab? Did God change? No, God was the same while she was in Moab as she is here. And since God is still on the throne, God does not change, there is always hope. Right? And so when she stopped blaming God and stopped uh, pushing him away as well and acknowledged his presence, then there was hope. God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He's got a thousand ways to provide for us, of which we know nothing. We make this one principle, first and foremost in our lives, of putting God's honor and service supreme. Our perplexities will vanish away. We might be able to think of maybe one or two ways that God can do something. God's got a thousand ways we can't even think of. And even when we can't think of any, God has a thousand and more ways to provide for us of which we can't think of any. We could be standing at the Red Sea and the uh, Pharaoh and his army ready to attack us and God can open a door where there wasn't one there before. We can trust him. He loves us with an everlasting love and his love for us never stops. Whether we reject him, whether we acknowledge it or not, his love never stops stops.
And if we open our hearts to Him and embrace Him and let that love come in and trust Him and have faith, He will meet our every need. Our emotional needs, spiritual needs, financial needs, the needs, and our uh, every aspect of our life, He will take care of us and walk us through. It doesn't mean we won't have problems. There are still deaths. My son still died. Her husband still died. But God is still on the throne. He's still at work. And death is not the end when we trust in the Lord. And the story doesn't end there as well. So we can hope in the Lord and trust in the Lord whatever stage we're at, no matter what we're going through, God has plans for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Plans to give us hope and an expected future. Hope is a choice. And when we don't have hope and we don't have faith, Bible promises we can ask for faith. Jesus, pray, Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, I don't have faith. Lord, I don't believe. Lord, I don't see a way out. Lord, all I see is a dark hole ahead. I surrender that to you. Forgive me, give me faith. Give me your light of your presence. Open my eyes that I may see things from your perspective. High and lifted up above the distractions of the earth, God sits enthroned. And the things that take place here do not throw him off. Do not deter him. Evil prospering, evil seeming to uh, win doesn't throw God off. He is still in control and still working things towards his end for our benefit because he loves you with an everlasting love that never stops. Boaz married Ruth and the Lord let her conceive and she bore a son and the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not withheld a redeemer from you today May his name be perpetuated in Israel, for he is born the daughter, born of your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. May his name be perpetuated. And here we are today fulfilling that prayer, fulfilling that wish. His name is perpetuated today as we read this story thousands of years later. They pronounce that the Lord has blessed you. He has not withheld a redeemer from you. Boaz has redeemed you. He has been there as a near kinsman to you. He has blessed you. And this daughter-in-law that you have is better than seven sons. Now, God can't replace the two sons. The two sons will never be replaced. No one will ever be able to replace the two sons for Naomi. When we experience death and we experience a loss, it'll never be the same. He'll always be the scar. If we go through the stages of grief, we'll eventually get to the point of being able to cope and handle and go on with life. But a scar will always be there. No one will ever replace the person you lost. If you enter a new chapter in your life, it's different. Naomi's life was different after she lost her sons and her husband. 
but her life was also different before she married. And it wasn't necessarily better or worse. It was different. When she was growing up in her home, that was one chapter in her life. When she was single, that was another chapter in her life. When she was married, that was another chapter in her life. When she had sons, that was another chapter in her life. And now, without the sons and without the husbands, it's another chapter. And it can't be compared with the other chapters. It's different. And in all of our lives, eventually we experience grief, we experience loss. And it's just a different stage in our life. And while his daughter-in-law is better than seven sons, does not replace the two sons, they're pronouncing it as a blessing better than even if you had seven sons. And so God has something in store. And God doesn't always have a new spouse for us as he had for Ruth. We don't have record of Naomi ever remarrying. We don't have, well, Ruth gets a child and Naomi gets a grandchild. We don't have record of Naomi getting another child. But God does provide in ways that he knows is best for whatever our situation is. We lost a limb and a new limb doesn't always grow back on. God doesn't always miraculously heal. I've seen him miraculously heal at times, but he doesn't always miraculously heal. Always, always doesn't always necessarily restore the financial loss that took place. Doesn't always replace whatever we're grieving. But he is there and he is enough. And he will meet our needs according to his riches and glory. And he does know what is best for us in the eternal plan, which is bigger than just what we're going through today. And so they called this child Boaz, uh, 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 Obed. He is the father of Jesse and the father of David. So Obed, where his name is perpetuated to today, we're talking about Obed, mentioned Obed. And he becomes the grandfather of David, which makes Naomi the great-great-grandmother, or maybe another great in there somewhere, of King David. And there's a wonderful promise in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, regarding this family. You, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And he's not talking about King David, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting, from before David, from before Judah, from before Adam and Eve. There's going to come one through this line, through Naomi's line, through Ruth, through Boaz, through Obed, a ruler, King David, and then a, through David's line, a son of David, the Mashiach, the Messiah, whose going forth are from eternity. He's coming, but he's already been from all eternity. A wonderful promise, an amazing promise, fulfilled right here in this story of this family. And if Ruth's husband did not die, she wouldn't have married Boaz, 
and wouldn't have had Obed. Who wouldn't have had Jesse? Who wouldn't have had David? And all of history would have been different. The Messiah still would have come, but the prophecies would have been different. Things would have had to been different. God would have again had to adjust. God adjusts with the evil that takes place in this world. But sometimes out of the dust of this earth, God works a tremendous blessing. And out of this great loss, out of this tremendous suffering, out of the death of Ruth's husband, Naomi's son, comes the opportunity for the Messiah to come and reign and be a blessing to all the world. That all the world would be blessed as the promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. All the world will be blessed by your offspring, by your seed, from the seed of David, from the seed of Abraham, from the seed of Eve, who would crush the serpent's head, who would be our eternal blessing. Another beautiful text out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 54, verses 4 through 8, as if they were written specifically for Naomi. Do not fear, for you will not be disgraced. For you will not be put to shame. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now that wasn't written for Naomi because Isaiah lived after Naomi. That was written for you. That was written for me. Though we go through times of feeling forsaken and grieved in spirit, God hasn't forsaken us. He has an everlasting kindness upon us. He shows mercy upon us. And he is our redeemer. He has not left us without a redeemer. He will redeem our soul. He will redeem our spirit. He will redeem our lives. He will bring the plant out of the seed buried in the soil. He will bring that plant to grow and bear fruit and plant more seeds. God will bless as we trust in him, as we hold on to him, as we walk with him, as we have faith in him. And so, are you grieving the loss of someone or something? Maybe recent, maybe from some far way in the back, past, but you're still grieving it, still affecting you. There's still hurt, there's still pain. And if that's the case, and I encourage you to read the chapter on Ruth in the book, Depressed People of the Bible, and jump ahead to read the book, chapter on Martha and Mary, and on the um, surprising example of depression. The principles in there that will help you through depression, the grief that you're going through. But for right now, in a moment when we pray, I invite you to surrender the grief over to the Lord. Ask him to help you go through the grieving process and give you the power to cope with the loss, to cope with the grief. Not to deny it, not to bury it, 
but to help you walk through it, for him to walk with you. Have you pushed people away from you? Again, whether currently or in the past, if you're thinking about being reminded, maybe you didn't think of it in the past, but now you're seeing yourself in the life of Naomi, and yeah, back 10 years ago, five years ago, whenever I did, I pushed so-and-so away. I, I didn't appreciate their presence. Maybe God, maybe you blame God, like Naomi did. And if that's the case, in a moment when we pray, you can confess that, receive the forgiveness of the Lord because of the Messiah's sacrifice in your behalf. Accept God's Spirit to transform you, change you, give you the ability and the courage and the strength to go and to speak to that person and apologize to them. Or, and again, if it was against God, to apologize to God, receive his forgiveness. And if it's current, maybe you're going through again grief right now and pushing people away, pray for God to give you the strength to let the logic to override the emotion, for you to have the maturity and the ability to be frank with them and say, you know, I'm really feeling depressed right now. I really just want to be alone, and that's okay. But give them permission to check back with you in a week or less. Three, can you think of someone to check on you? Again, if you're experiencing grief right now and pushing people away, you might have to stop and think. Again, you might not be even seeing Ruth walking right there with you. But if you stop and think, if you will think of someone, certainly God is with you. And I believe in every case there is somebody. It's one of the reasons it's important to be part of a congregation have a congregational family, to be consistent in coming, to make friends with people of faith who will love you, who will care for you, who will stand with you and be with you through the hard times. So think of someone. Ask God to help you to think of someone. Maybe they're far away, but still they can give you a call. They can still be with you, even from a distance. And again, God is with you. Do you feel hopeless? You can't see the future. You can't see how you're going to provide tomorrow. You're in some desperate situation. And you can't see through the darkness. Ask God to give you an eye of faith. To see beyond the current. To see beyond what you're going through right now. For God to open your mind and open your horizon and to have hope even if you can't see. To let go and let God and just trust Him. So if you don't have hope, ask God to give you hope. Ask God to give you faith. Again, you can confess, Lord, I'm not choosing faith. I confess that. I'm choosing to be hopeless. I confess that. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for cleansing me with the power of the Messiah. Thank you for removing that from me. Give me faith. Give me hope. The Bible says God has given to everyone a measure of faith. So he's already given it to you. And it also says if we're lacking in faith, ask and he will give us more. And so ask and you will receive. Lord, give me faith.
Give me hope. Have you been pushed away? Maybe you are currently or in the past have stood in the position of ministering to someone, helping someone in their grief, and you were pushed away. How did you handle it? Did you get angry? Did you take it personally? Did you just leave them then and let them just float out to sea on their own? Did you just go your own way and dust your feet? And if that's the case, again, we have forgiveness in the Messiah. And God can give you the ability to redeem that, make it right as much as possible within you. If it's something you're experiencing right now, again, don't take it personally. Look past it and be there for the person. And find your strength and comfort and worth in God. Not in what other people say about you, whether they've talked badly about you, whether they've cursed you, whether they've pushed you away. That doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter at all. We've pushed the Lord away. And he hasn't left us. He still came for Adam and Eve. He still walked with them and talked with them. He first loved us. While we were yet sinners, the Messiah died for us. He doesn't take our rejection personally. He doesn't let him get him down. He sticks with us. And when we allow him to give us his mind and his heart, his spirit within us, He'll give us the ability. It won't matter what people say about you, whether they push you away or reject you. God accepts you, and that's all that matters. And that'll give us the ability to still unconditionally continue to love. And we need wisdom, and you don't want to be battered. You might want to step aside, and I've done that. And I told the person, if you keep on saying that, I'm going to end this conversation. <laughs> I'll check back with them in a day or two or whatever, you know, but... Uh, but don't stand there and continue to be abused. That's not healthy for you or for them. It's certainly not for them. And so it's okay to call that out and say, that's not appropriate. I know you're depressed. I know you're grieving. I know you're going through a hard time, but that's not appropriate. And uh, you know, if you just want to be alone, that's fine. I'll check back in a few days. And again, if you're in that situation, think of a tactful way to stay in contact. I pray about it. See a way to, again, contact them at some point in time and check on them and continue your role in ministering to them and helping them through their time of grief. So if any of these areas apply to you or something else in the story of Ruth that applied to you, maybe one of those 10 hits that you're, God's calling you to work on at this time in your life, let us pray and let God do his mighty work in us. Okay? Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, Thank you that you know what it's like to lose a child. Thank you that you know what it's like to grieve. Thank you for coming in the flesh, knowing what it's like to be rejected. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for knowing what it's like to experience great loss, personal loss. Thank you for being one with us. Thank you for being close to us. Hold our hand and walk with us. Help us through our griefs, help us through our losses, 
Thank you for the promise of everlasting life. Thank you for the promise of heaven. Thank you for the promises of hope in the here and present as well. Give us the ability to hold on to your promises and walk with you. Lord, use us in ministering to others. Give us the tact and the wisdom and the maturity to know when to speak, when not to speak, when to be there, when to pull back, and when to check back. And use us in ministering to others. In Yeshua's holy name. Amen. Amen. Also in the book, The Press People of the Bible book, at the back, there's a bunch of promises. So if you're going through and having a hard time with hope and grief and faith, you can jump to the back and read through the list of promises there.